Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Home and Away, a podcast about all things in and around the world of sporting Kansas City soccer. I am Drew Vanderplug, joined once again, as always, by my good friend Cody Welton. This week on the podcast, Sporting Kansas City completed the highly improbable task of making it into the MLS postseason with consecutive wins versus Real Salt Lake in Minnesota. The former being a bit more of a butt cheek clencher than most would have liked, but the latter being a fairly comprehensive performance, taking them up into eighth place and securing another game at Children's Mercy Park tomorrow night as we're recording this versus the San Jose Earthquakes. Peter Vermees had a lot to say afterward about the quote-unquote doubters, which he sort of earned the right to clap back at and sort of didn't. Either way, it was the kind of response you'd expect in that circumstance, and as self-admitted doubters of this eventual scenario, we can take it. Tactical corner this week will be more of analytical corner. We're going to talk about nerdy stuff and positive variance that is difficult to quantify, often referred to as luck. We will also discuss how to use statistical models in combination with your game model to help inform decisions in both roster construction and team performance, and how important it is for them to be intertwined in a league where the margins are so small. Additionally, I'm going to admit my emotional bias in analyzing this team, and we can discuss how the decision makers at the top levels of the sport have to be borderline psychotic to use analytics effectively. Cody, the vibes were back in Children's Mercy Park on Saturday. The club brought it with the pregame show and the claim on the play on the field. The fans brought it with a standing room only crowd and their own intensity. And it was kind of fun to feel something important happen in that stadium again, wasn't it? Yeah, it was it was just feeling something. <laughs> you know, it uh, I think that, that your point about the, the club bringing it is uh, is really good um, and well earned by them. Uh, it it felt like it felt like a big game. It felt like important uh, an important game. It felt like uh, a, a scenario in which the team uh, was was grateful and acknowledging the the value of fans. And so uh, that I mean, that kind of feeling has really been lacking. I think um, uh, for a lot of fans, including myself. Uh, this season and and so it was it was uh, it was nice to see it uh, it was nice to feel it and uh, you know the stadium was packed and the cauldron was uh, was doing their thing and doing a great job and 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 the team stepped up and the team rewarded uh, all of that and I uh, and you know hats off to them you know they deserve they deserve all the credit in the world they were exceptionally well prepared you could tell for this match they had the most complete performance I can remember all season. I mean, the goal notwithstanding, I'm not going to get into a Kyrie yeah. Shelton bashing yeah. experience. We've done it enough <laughs> times. And, I mean, it, you know, also, he he's not a good aerial defender. We know this. So I just don't understand why we're asking him to mark center backs on set pieces. But whatever. He's tall, Drew. Um, That's why. He's tall. That's it. That's it. <laughs> I, I got to be honest with you. Michael Boxall's head was like even with the crossbar. Did you see how yeah, high yeah, that dude was, got in the air? He was sky. That's, that's... The, the, I don't know many people that would have caught much of that, to be completely honest. But yeah, he kind of tripped a little bit along the way and was able not that able to. Anyway. Not a big deal. Regardless, regardless of that goal, the, the, the performance was comprehensive. Um, extremely comprehensive on the defensive yeah, side of the really, ball as well. Really, really nice defensive performance. I was warmed. By and and Vermee said it in the in the post game afterwards it was probably the best you know performance by the back four all year. Yeah. 
Um, and and, and you know. the, the key thing is that every one of them had a good game, and that has not been the case really hardly at all. I mean, it seems like it right. seems like every week. It's one not of to them... say that they never make mistakes. Right. I mean, Jake Davis had a bad giveaway that yeah. he had to go make a foul and take a yellow card on, but he took the yellow yeah, card did. to make sure they uh-huh. didn't get get on goal. Like, and and I think that that's what I'm saying. Like, you you're never going to be perfect in a game of soccer. That's not how this that's not how this works. There are going to be mistakes made. How do you deal with them? How do your teammates help you in that circumstance to help you know clean up for those mistakes? And there was a lot of that happening as well. And it was yeah, it was. It was good to see. Fontes had a really good game. Uh, best one I've seen in years, yeah. honestly. Yeah. A consistently high performance from him. Um, and that, like you said, that has not, you know, it seems like every game that there's a few plays where you're just like, oh, gosh, no. You know, you're like, and I, I think there, there were one or two of those plays uh, uh, on Saturday night, but. But for the most part, it was a really, uh, a really measured performance from him. He he did his job. He didn't uh, didn't get too crazy. He didn't get you know uh, caught up field. Kept too the game much. in front yep, of him. That's, that's it. the key yeah, with Fonte. Really he keeps the game in front of him. He's generally he's okay. It's when he lets the game get behind him. It helped that Minnesota was in a Christmas tree. There yeah. wasn't a whole yep. lot trying to, to to press him deep. Uh, Chad Smith actually asked me Twitter before the match or X or. I'm still calling it Twitter. Um, he asked me before the match, because we obviously, as most of you listen to this podcast, no, we haven't recorded a podcast in a, few, in a little bit. Um, he was like, hey, I was looking for your you know, tactical analysis on how they were going to deal with Emmanuel Reynoso. Well, it didn't really matter because Reynoso was kind of on an island. Yeah, so so I think uh, for a lot of the game, it seemed like they they were content to let him kind of do his thing, and they um, they were quick to jump the passing lanes of the his outlets, and so they uh, you know it's it's an interesting way to play him, um, and you know there were a few times where you know it seemed like he could have put Pookie in, um, uh, and but but. Our defenders were good at stepping and winning balls and um, and intercepting balls and uh, making tackles and making blocks. And, um, and so it really kind of neutralized him uh, without having to, you know, do something silly like man mark him or any of that. I mean, and, and, and you know, the, there were I mean, they they didn't um, they didn't just stay away from him. I mean, you know, there were a few players who who really kind of, you know, harassed him a little bit and Voltaire did and and Jake Davis did but for the most part I mean uh they you know they kind of kept their distance and let him do his thing and and you know let him dive whenever he wanted to dive and uh that was interesting he's uh he's a world-class diver I think he's a uh I was I was really disappointed honestly because I you know he's fun player to watch but you know watching him live his uh his diviness was was uh super apparent unfortunately fairly a common i don't want to i don't want to you know what i'm not gonna be stereotypical about stuff but yeah i mean we know that in south america it's not uncommon for that to be a tactic and and part of the problem is because they have to do that to get calls because the refereeing is so bad so it's like they're taught this at a very young age because when they're playing there there's there's just there's poor official poor officiating uh, in South America, which causes a scenario where you have to do that to get calls. Um, I want to be I like thought, I, uh, I, I, 
I was just disappointed because it was him. Like, I don't really have a big problem with diving overall. I've had players who who really <laughs> utilize that, and it's kind of like uh, eye rolling for me. But it is what it is. Whatever. Like you said, um, it's it's it, um, it's a way to get calls, especially when you're not getting them uh, otherwise. So, wh- whatever. If it didn't work, people wouldn't do yep, it. That's true. This is the this is this. I mean, if if. Actual diving was yellow carded and refs like actually called fouls right. that didn't where people didn't go to the ground upset aggressively. It would it it wouldn't happen. Yeah. But that's where we are. And so it's just but kind at, of a at the same time, you know, and, and it's there's there's kind of maybe a fine line between drawing fouls and and diving. And, you know, that's one of the things Sporting Kansas City did really, really well, uh, especially Eric Tommy was uh, was, you know, putting themselves in position, uh, the attackers, especially putting themselves in position to draw fouls. Uh, you can see uh, it's it's something that's really kind of I, I wouldn't really consider it a dark art, but it's a very savvy and mature way of uh, or sophisticated way of playing it. When, uh, when, when there's not a uh, a clear opening or a clear uh, um, uh, like overload that you can take advantage of, and you're kind of in, you know box yourselves in sometimes by by passing or dribbling. Uh, an easy way to get out of that is to is to let or make the other uh, the other team value, and uh, and that uh, they they did a really good job of that uh, on Saturday night, I think. There's uh there's definitely a nuance to it, which is related to using your opponent's um, motion or their their um, their inertia mm-hmm. yep. against them. Yep. Right. Like seeing that where that where that inertia is coming from and what the direction it's coming mm-hmm. from, and touching the ball in a way that causes them to have to come in at speed in the wrong way. And then you can draw the foul. And it, it is it is a nuanced thing that that is um, very savvy for certain individuals to be able to pull off. Um, you have to have pretty good control of your body mm-hmm. and the ball to make it to, to pull it off consistently. But it it is a talent if you're capable of it, and especially in a scenario for you know what was it 28 minutes before Johnny scored, where they were in a Christmas tree and they were not attempting to possess the mm-hmm. ball. And you're really just sitting back against a bunker trying to just switch the ball over and over again. And I will say this sporting was aggressively switching the ball. This wasn't the sort of pass it around the umbrella of, of despair. Like you often <laughs> talk about, that was not what they were doing. They were drawing Minnesota over and then mm-hmm. switching hard to the other side. And, but it was still, it was a, it was a bunker defense to try to break down. And it was difficult. And so in those circumstances, when you're in tight spaces, you can earn a free kick. There's value in that, yeah. right? Um, I will say that uh, two things that I was happy about with this. One, they didn't resort to trying to bang crosses. Yeah, amen. They did not. They kept switching it. They kept yeah. switching it. They kept moving the pendulum until they could get in. And they do have two wingers that are good at dribbling 1v1. So when they're capable. And by the way, Daniel Shallowy had a great yeah, game in this one. I don't yeah. know that it shows up on the stat sheet. He got the assist, obviously, mm-hmm. to Voltaire. But there were a number of times where he he inverted and split defenders and created problems yep. for them. And it didn't always come off. But those those are the types of attacking dribbling runs that need to happen. Not this take it to the end line, cut it back nonsense, or, or not cut it back, but take it to the end line, hit a cross, right? Right. right. Just hit an aimless cross. Um, 
Shallowy's assist was the cutback to the Man City zone, yep. and there was the crashing runner, which I know also makes Cody very happy to see. Dude, um, <laughs> I was like, "Who's that?" It was like somebody just <laughs> appeared out of the midfield, and I was, uh, I was kind of perplexed at first. Uh, there were a number of time, a number of like as I look as I walk watch the game back, there were a number of circumstances where I saw five blue shirts yeah. inside the eighteen, and I was just like, "Okay, that that matters. It really, really, really matters." Yeah, and and when you play when when you watch on the weekends the european uh leagues when you e- even at that high level and and those are teams that that will kill you any little mistake that can counter that can possess you know even even the worst teams in the premiership um you know can do all of those things better than than most mls teams and um and yet when those teams have to score, they put people in the box, um, and and that's the surest way that that you can do to you know to 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 put the odds in your favor. If you are at a numbers disadvantage while you're trying <laughs> to score goals, it's bad. Yeah. It's just not. Yeah. It's not going to be go in your favor. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, best I, case scenario, and even even when you have five in the box, yeah. typically you're still like at best one v one. You might even have a double team in some circumstance. So, like, that's what that's what. What we're saying is like you have to get those numbers mm-hmm. in there, or you have literally no chance. So, that, and that's something that we have lamented a lot this season yeah. that we have not seen that aggressive uh, tactic, and we're not really sure if that is a game model problem or a player problem. But either way, it is. It was definitely rectified on uh, on Saturday night. I have some thoughts as to the length of time off this team had before this game as to whether or not that had an impact on it. We, we know how bad this team is generally on short rest, which is somewhat concerning for Wednesday. Um, but also their opponent is not good on short rest is on the same short rest is traveling here and is terrible on the road. Yeah. So we'll get to that preview later, but um, you know, two weeks off, Definitely did this team good, even though it appears that there are some nagging injuries mm-hmm. out there. Um, Polito hasn't really looked great since he signed that freaking contract extension. <laughs> Crazy, honest. isn't it? Actually, <laughs> you know, I, I thought uh, I thought that he um, he actually didn't have a terrible game on Saturday. I thought that he did a he lot of of the dirty work and he did not he get, drew he, the defenders yeah, out he did not get yeah, rewarded there, there at was, all but but he, yeah. he, he you know one, one of the things that that i mean we've talked about is how left left-handed the attack is and it was like even more so on on um on saturday the and denbe had had the most touches on the team uh um on either team um he had like over 80 he had like 86 touches insane for a left back i would love to see what his distance covered was yeah he he was he was up and down and up and down but but both he and tommy were tommy was everywhere uh, so tommy was very very good uh he was probably the most defensively responsible game I've ever seen. Yeah. I've seen from him, not ever, but I've seen from mm-hmm. him since he got here. Like a couple games into the season last year, I you know you saw him really track yeah. back and his and motor. His motor he was, was revving for sure. It was it was, and now he's got a calf strain. <laughs> but, you know. but but anyway, you have you know you have Ndenbe and Shallowy and Tommy um, and uh, on that on that left side, and then you have 
um, Polito sort of dropping in to provide that overload. And, and you know, his touches were definitely shaded towards that side of the field. And um, and it's it's an important thing. And, and you know, everybody used to give uh, uh, Kyrie Shelton all the plaudits when, you know, when Shelton had that had that uh, season of, of, of starting at center forward for a lot. And, and Shallow, we had a really good year that year. And that was what the people were saying that, that uh, Shelton was doing was uh, a lot of that dirty work and drawing defenders out and his movement was a problem. And I think that was the case with Polito. And, um, you know, it, he needs he needs more touches in the box. I mean, that, you know, especially if you know, the reason you have a player like that, the reason you pay money for a player like that is so that he can be special when the game matters. And, and going into the playoffs, if we manage to get by uh, San Jose especially, um, he needs to he needs to be getting the ball in the box uh, to, to have chances to, to prove his quality. I think the key with him is that he can, unlike any player we've had, he can not touch the ball Mm -hmm. for 89 minutes. And then if he gets that one chance, he's put it home. Yep. Right. And I just don't, I like, you feel confident that if he gets that little pocket of space, he's going to do something with it. It's rare to see him fuck up a shot chance. Yep. Like he just doesn't. So I, 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 I agree. I hear what you're saying and I agree with you, but I also think that him drawing defenders up, especially given how he, um, he tends to play a little deeper, mm-hmm. him drawing, him drawing defenders up near the top of the 18 or outside of it. So the ring wingers can go behind him. Mm-hmm is actually a it's a it's a positive thing yep. that will off balance put defenses off balance and it happened in this game and even if he's not the one making the trailing run that Voltaire makes the, to score that goal it's because he's occupying two center backs yeah. that Voltaire can just run free like full speed free into the box yep. and just bang it home and and so i think that the threat of him mm-hmm. is enough Whereas with Kyrie Shelton, yeah, there's no threat. Once opponents figured, once opponents <laughs> yeah. figured out that he wasn't a threat to yeah. score, that and 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 I say this, I'm like I said, this is not meant to, to shit on Kyrie Shelton, but there there are levels to this, and 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 Kyrie is not Alan Polito as a center forward, and I, I think Kyrie has been a lot better since they've moved him out to the wing, and he's only playing right wing when he comes into games. Um, the mistake defensively notwithstanding. Um, so I, I, but I, what I'm saying, I think that, um, that Polito is teams know that if they give him half yard of space, Mm -hmm. he's putting the ball in frame. And if your goalkeeper's not in the right spot, he's scoring. So I think that that threat is enough when you have two high quality wingers that can come in behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you have someone like Tommy or Kinda. Kinda, obviously, much more of a facilitator mm-hmm. at finding that pass for that winger. Tommy's been better at it, but also Tommy can... In, he, he did a really good job. I don't know if you noticed this. I was really impressed with him finding the overlap when Shally would invert. Mm-hmm. So they're starting to figure out that partnership a little bit more. Um, and I, I, so, you know, there, there's different things the team can do based on personnel, which I find, um, 
heartwarming because <laughs> I felt like what the team was doing was a little bit stayed. Yeah. And I, I think that um, this is where I will agree with Peter Vermees in the fact that once they had a full complement of their high, of their best players, that it did change the calculus for how this team can attack other teams. Sure, absolutely. Which is, it's sort, it's sort of a like duh yeah. statement, right? <laughs> like, I, I get that. Um, that, that that's not a that's not a wild um, take, or you know, it's not it's the it's the coldest of takes probably in MLS. It's like, oh, you got your DPs back, you're better now. Um, now he he was basically it, it, comparing it to you know the Chiefs being without uh, Mahomes and uh, and Kelsey, and I don't quite. Uh, I think that's a little. <laughs> I think that's a little much, but you know, you're talking about two like. Right in pen, first ballot Hall of Famers. Right, already. exactly. Right? Like the, these are guys that are going into the Hall of Fame yeah. the first time they're eligible to be voted on. Yeah, and um, that is not who we're talking no. about here. <laughs> it's um, not Johnny Russell. Johnny Russell's name is going to be on the wall 100%. someday for sure. Yeah, um, but it, uh, there isn't really an MLS Hall of Fame. They do the, the whole National Soccer Hall of Fame, and it's a little bit weird as to how that happens. Um, but yeah, it's it's not there are levels to this. I I understand the comparison he's trying to make. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit hyperbolic. Yeah, his whole uh, his whole post game uh, uh, demeanor was <laughs> hyperbolic. I think, and so well, he's from New Jersey. Yeah. Okay, we knew that he was going to keep the receipts. We knew that he was going to be a little bit, you know butthurt about the Vermies out chance. And I, I, he, he deserves all he, Hey, look, name another profession where someone can, um, come to your place of work and gather and scream for your firing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's not a fun, that's not a fun feeling to have. Right. And I understand that there are levels to this too. Peter Vermees is a fairly well compensated individual he is um he he's you know he he's been a staple of this organization for a while he has set a standard and an expectation regarding performance that candidly has not been met over the last 5 or so years and you know two things can be true right the hand wringing and you know, loud frustration and chance for him to be fired and all of that may have been a little overdone. That 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 can be true. And, and you know, the the having zero faith in the team's ability to overcome pretty ridiculous odds just to get to this point, right? Yeah, I, I understand why you do, and some of it is coach speak to the nobody believed in us sort of thing that you know we hear all the time. All that can be true for sure. See, I, I think honestly, I think he was mostly let off the hook. I mean, frankly, um, 
especially well, especially I mean, especially by national media i mean that nobody nobody paid any attention to sporting kansas city uh for the entire season um and uh, i mean not that they do when when the team is good either necessarily right. um but this but in this case it, that, this that worked this for him, wasn't yeah right i mean he yeah, wasn't there wasn't, wasn't pressure on him you know there wasn't a there wasn't you know people talking about him being on the hot seat that was never ever the case well, and this is the this is the difference between MLS and the English Premier League or Syria or any of those places. If you shit the bed this hard for two straight mm-hmm. years, yeah, and three out of five, yeah. that's the thing. Like the the, you, the the local papers are coming after you. The everybody's coming after you. And I'm not saying that that pressure is necessarily good or bad. I I don't know if it is, but. To act like I told y'all, blah, 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 I'm, I'm king shit now, da, 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 when you finished eighth. Like, that's what I'm saying. Two things can be true. One, yeah, you did it. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. And you believed in yourself and you believed in your players and you had the best record in the West since May 1st and all the other stuff. That That is all true. Absolutely. You still lose games at a terrible... You, like you get boat raced in games yeah. like that happens yeah. with not in not, not like it's not it's not like every once in a while like no this happens with fairly consistent fairly you know noticeable regularity but also the first 10 games happened yeah yes you didn't have your players but other teams don't have players mm-hmm. and it was a cakewalk of a schedule mm-hmm. during that time as well mm-hmm. it was a, the mildest of mild schedules yeah. during those games. And literally, if you just grab four points more, yep. I'm not talking about like winning a bunch more. Yep. I'm talking about some of those games you gave up late. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if you just gain four points more from that circumstance, now we're not, now we're talking about you're in the top, you're in the top four or five yeah. in the conference. And those are the margins in this league. Yep. Well, and, 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 and I, I realize that that's a that's a tough thing to put on a coach's back, but also like don't don't come at your fans who are frustrated with, with that have reasonable frustrations about the performance of the team in certain circumstances when you finished eighth. Right. <laughs> Like you finished eighth. In, like, in, can you chill in a, the fuck in, out? Like for real. In a league where where you know over half of the teams in the league make the playoffs, it's eighteen it's not, of twenty nine teams make the playoffs. Can we stop <laughs> celebrating this like it's some sort of fucking trophy? Yeah, yeah. So like, like I said, both things can be true. He does. We all doubted it. I I know I said it on this podcast. I totally doubt it. Like, and I, what are we fucking talking about? Like playoffs? No, we're not making the fucking playoffs. What are you talking about? And they did it. So like I I I will I will wholeheartedly admit the fact that they did some shit I did not believe they would do. I will sit here and do that. Yep. I was a quote unquote doubter. Yeah. But I was at the game per year, and I was at every fucking game yep. you guys played. <laughs> it it doesn't like. <laughs> Doubting the capability of the team doesn't mean you support them less. Yeah. Like that's what I'm saying. Like those those two things, like they don't need they're not inextricably linked. 
it, they are inextricably linked for a lot of the people who sit in the East stand. Mm-hmm. I understand that. I understand you don't like looking out there and seeing most of the sporting logo across there. Maybe play better. Yeah. And that that's won't happen. It. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So like I, 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 like I said, both things can be true, but the two, other, but other two things can also be true. We can be ardent, avid supporters of this team and also not be okay with how most of the season went down. Yeah. And also, and also I think I, that's, a, <laughs> I think, I think that's reasonable as well. And also I would say not trust that, uh, that, that things are going to change or that things aren't going to take a turn in the playoffs, you know, and, and, you know, he has Peter Burmese has that the the clearest possible way that he can truly silence uh, all of the doubters, and that is not only to win uh, tomorrow night because obviously that that would have to be the case. But you go you go beat uh, St. Louis uh, um, to advance. That's it. I mean, I mean that's the clearest way that you can prove that that you know your. You're uh, uh, an elite coach, and that your team is as good as you claim that it is. That's it. It's right in front of you to do. And in fairness, they've been they've got smoked. <laughs> right. Times. They went to St. Right. Louis. Right. And if they're if they're gonna if they're gonna win against St. Louis, they have to win at least once yep. there. And they got absolutely trashed the two times they went there. Now some of that is positive statistical variance and we'll get into that when we talk when we get to tactical corner um and you have to think that at some point things aren't going to go st louis's way but we can also discuss why they have sort of weaponized that in their favor right and i i think that yeah if they were if they were to knock out st louis i mean let's be honest making the playoffs Nothing's changing next year. They signed him to a deal until 2029 at the beginning of this year. Making the playoffs means that he's going to stick around. I don't think a whole lot's going to change as far as the philosophy and how this club does things. Now, in Peter Vermees's, you know, for Peter Vermees's benefit, he does. He is a very thoughtful person and a highly competitive person. And he works through different ideas about how he wants to make the team work. And I promise you, he will spend a time. He will, he will be, he's like Andy Reid in that fact, yeah. that he will work 12 hours a day during the offseason, like coming up with a game model and understanding, working with Brian Bliss and trying to identify the right players that they could sign. We'll get into that when we get into the offseason review. I'm not. I, there are, I think, some opportunities for this team to invest some money based on the latest salary dump. So I think that there are some things we can talk about there. But he will invest that time and energy, and he does take it extremely seriously. Sure. And I, so I think from that from that perspective, yes, I understand where some of the you know New Jersey clapback comes from. I get it, but also you presided over the team that had one of the worst MLS starts in history. (laughs) I don't care what players are on the field. Yeah, You presided over that and failed to just get, like seriously, three or four points would have totally changed the dynamics of where this team sits right now. Yep, I totally agree. 
So, you know, like I said, both things can be true. Uh, I I appreciate the level uh, that they've played at for the last, geez, it's been five months. Like, it has been a significantly long period of time. But they've also dropped games fairly poorly yeah. over that time. Yeah, yeah they've and been... And it's just hard for me to believe. Even, I think, so here's the thing. I think that they can, obvious, obviously, they can be a San, a San Jose mm-hmm. on Wednesday. I don't know if they will, but they can. And they should, yeah. candidly. They should. In a three-game series against St. Louis, I think that's where Peter Vermees' tactics and whatnot actually take over. And I think that there's a better than small chance that they do that, right? Like, a lot of people are like, oh, St. Louis, blah, 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 blah. St. Louis has never been through MLS play- Cup playoffs. They are not very good over the last couple months yeah. other than that 4-1 win against us they're not that good over the last couple months they got beat at home by seattle fairly comprehensively yeah. so like teams that know that have that have been through this and like know what's important they they know how to do this i i believe that it is inherently possible and it's a, it's a larger than single digit chance that they do this i think it's probably in the 30 to 40% range yeah. that they do it it's single elimination the rest of the way through. And I just don't trust this team in a single elimination tournament. No, they, they, they have not shown that they are trustworthy, honestly. So, uh, you're, you're right not to, not to trust them. Um, because they, I mean, the because their performances is they get, they get every, have been unconvincing. Every game's a, every game's a week off. Right. They're not doing any, that is, that is a great thing, card. right? Uh, yeah. because, uh, you know, one of the, one of the key, things about uh saturday is is that uh uh, radia played the whole game and that's important (laughs) that's really really important it's really important. so uh and uh and and the defense had uh, had a fantastic game and those two things are not um coincidental you know so um in in order for the team to uh, especially advance against St. Louis. Should we uh, should we win tomorrow night? Uh, they they're going to need a healthy pneumonia Rodia for sure. Mm-hmm. I think um, for San Jose because Espinosa plays on the wing, and I felt like they had a fairly good tactic against him within Denbe last time they came here. I don't know that Rodia is as important on Wednesday night, and I would almost say hey maybe manage his minutes a little bit, especially if we get up, if we get up a couple goals, I get him the fuck out of there because we absolutely need him against St. Louis and that for that game. um, So if sporting were to win Wednesday night, they would be playing at like 9 PM on Sunday, I guess. That's the Matt Damon special. (laughs) Just, just for him. Or Demline. He's going to have to be up at like 6 in the morning Eastern to work. <laughs> and that game's not going to end until after midnight. <laughs> we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. They still got to win a yep, game that's, first. So that's it's not very a big, true. you know, there, there's, there's all kinds of statistics pointing to why San Jose has no chance on Wednesday, which is, of course, why they will, yeah. you know, win 3 nothing, right? Well, again, we'll talk about that on uh, when we get to the preview. Uh, all right, let's roll into analytical corner as I like to call it this week. Um, so good friend of the pod, Mark sent me a interesting um, sort of, uh, it was a, it was a, it was a clip from a, um, a podcast 
that um, was used on a podcast he listens to, and it was really discussing. It was just a clip of a of an interview that Luke Bourne did with the Moneyball podcast, the Wharton Moneyball podcast, or I think it's like a radio show on Sirius XM as well. But they also do it in podcast form. And so Luke Bourne, for those, well, I'm sure nobody listening to this podcast has any idea who Luke Bourne is. He is one of the co-owners and the CEO of AC Milan. Uh, he, previous to that, was co-owner and CEO of Toulouse, which is a French Ligue 1 team. At the time that they acquired them, it was a Ligue 2 team. They had just been relegated from Ligue 1 to Ligue 2. Uh, they had, there was the first time they'd been out of Ligue 1 in 20 years. So they had kind of fallen down hard. His history is actually as a uh, statistics PhD. So he was a professor at Harvard, as well as a university in Vancouver, BC, where he's from that you've probably never heard of. But he is a tenured professor um, in statistics research. And during the time that he had been in those um, education roles and uh, research roles uh, with higher education, he had also done some stints with sports franchises. So he um, took a leave of absence from his role in Vancouver and was the head of analytics for the Sacramento Kings uh, for uh, three years. He also did a stint with AS Roma and found that he really enjoyed the sports analytics side of things. Actually, where he started to get involved in it were when back in 2013 and i don't know how many how much you guys know about this but there uh, the nba finally released a bunch of tracking data for their players to kurt goldsbury who was a geospatial researcher at harvard and uh luke bourne was there at the same time and uh goldsbury was very good at visualization of information but was not necessarily as good at compiling it and creating the math related to break it down and whatnot. And they happened to link up together and kind of work for that. At that time, Bourne was actually using, was doing tracking data for animals. So he was actually looking at like seal migration and things like that, where they like strap a GPS to a seal and just like sort of figure out what their patterns are. But the density of the data was pretty small because, or pretty large, actually, it was, it was wide density, because, you know, you just get a ping every now and then you're not getting a whole lot of very um, finite data as far as movement and whatnot. Whereas the NBA had this stuff that was like, several points per second of movement data that they were able to analyze and go through. And Kirk Goldsberry, for those of you that aren't aware, is well known in the NBA analytics space at this point because of the fact that he helped visualize all this information and helped create where a lot of the analytics uh, exist in the NBA at this point. Luke Bourne was a huge part of that as helping them understand that information before they visualized it. Um, so Luke is now after, after doing the, the job with the, the, with the Kings and then with Ro well, Roma prior to, and then, and then to the Kings, he decided that he did not um, really want to be in academia anymore. Uh, the process by which you would have to go through to um, publish information and get peer reviews and all that stuff. It's, it's fairly 
prescribed and a little bit you know reliant on your peers to be able to get the information out that you want to. He found that to be a little bit arduous, as well as he's given out all of his research for free, right? The papers go out, everybody gets to read it, everybody gets to find his information. He was like, hey, if I'm going to come up with all this good idea on my own, I should be able to utilize it for my own benefit. And he started an analytics company called Zealous. Uh, it's a sports analytics company that covers all the major sports, including um, cricket. That's They're getting into cricket now and doing analytical data on cricket. And actually, his um, capital investment firm owns a cricket team as well. And through that process, he also started working with Redbird Capital, which is a huge multi-billion dollar investment firm to create Redbird FC. So they utilize the Redbird Capital finances to invest in football clubs. And so that's how they ended up uh, working with Toulouse. And they were able to acquire Toulouse for a fairly um, innocuous amount because the team had just been relegated. And this is a team their their club actually like, um, you know, their, their stadium, it's, it's in a fairly, you know, populous area of France. And they were able to, you know, it's it's hosted the World Cup in '98. It hosted the the Euros in 2016. Like it, it's it's a cool place to go. And it, it like I said, it's been the first time that they had been relegated in 20 years. And they brought their model uh, to that club, moved that club uh, from Ligue 2 to Ligue 1 again, and then actually won the French Cup in 2022. They're playing in Europa League this year. Um, at the same time that they were working on investing in AC Milan. And so there's all kinds of stuff about how they had to sort of divest from Toulouse and like change it because of UEFA's anti-competition rules and whatnot. But um, the interesting thing is, is like, after they proved their model at Toulouse, they went after acquiring AC Milan. And so now he is the CEO at AC Milan. Now that's a long story and I understand all that. But the reason I wanted to kind of get your heads around that whole story is so that you understand, like, this guy, he understands data and information. And he looks at it from a completely different perspective than most of us do because he is self-admittedly not a sports fan. Uh, he did not get into sports until that NBA data that hit Kirk Goldsberry at Harvard in 2013. And it was more for him the value of seeing all of this highly dense movement data that he could analyze that was extremely more detailed than anything he'd ever seen before. And it allowed him to create insights from it. And it kind of got him more and more interested into performance of teams and how they work and utilizing movement tracking data, positional kind of information. There, there's so much available with a professional sports team, especially a professional football club. Everyone makes jokes about the sports bras you see the guys wearing when they when they take their jersey off at the end of games. That's because they have a movement tracking device inside that sports bra that sits in the middle of their back that literally tells you everywhere they've been at every point in the game with a it's probably 20 hertz GPS. So you're talking about 20 samples per second. Like it's highly, highly um, dense as far as the information you get from it. Never mind the, the heart rate data and all of the other stuff that goes along with it where you can measure someone's performance. And it allows data scientists like Luke Bourne the ability to kind of analyze 
what players are getting into certain positions at the right time, their proximity to other players on the field, all the different stuff that they use to kind of define performance. So I say all of that to say that there's an opportunity here with these, with this information for clubs to be, to create a competitive advantage. Um, one of the things that he discussed about what they did at Toulouse when they got there was they had gotten relegated. They had a payroll of 34 million, which would be what the second highest in MLS. I guess Miami is at 39 or something like that with Messi. But um, up until, you know, Messi would have been the highest payroll in MLS by a fairly significant margin. And they had to get that payroll down to $10 million or 10 million euro for them to have the financial stability they needed. And he discusses a lot during this discussion with Wharton about, you know, creating financial viability for the franchise, for the club itself, so that you're not writing 10 to 15 to $50 million checks every year just to keep the club afloat. You need to make them solvent on their own. And so it requires just a, a, a mindset behind how you go about building your roster. $10 million is like what the Colorado Rapids spend on their salary. Okay. And that's not within good. two years. That's not that's <laughs> low. It's extremely low, right? And within two years, they so the first year they missed out on uh qualifying uh for promotion by two points. They had to play Nantes in the promotion playoff and they lost on the away goal rule. So the first year that they did this and they completely revamped the roster and, and gutted, you know, 60, 70% of the payroll. They almost went through the next year. They had the best offensive year in Syria or in, in league de history easily promote, got promoted, moved back into Ligue 1, And then the following year they won the coupe de France. And in fairness, he will wholeheartedly admit that they got some luck involved with that. They got a very, they've got a very easy draw. They never had to play PSG. They never had to play Lille. They never had to play Lyon. Like they never had to play some of the the, the larger clubs in Ligue 1. But they also, and then they trashed Nantes 5-1 in the final in order to win it. And um, the reason I bring up the luck part of it was because he had another very salient point that I thought was really interesting and what I want to start this conversation with, which is, you, you know, luck is an analytical measure. Um, if you there, it's a well-known or a well-accepted norm amongst data analysts of, of soccer specifically, and I think sports in general, that the largest factor to positive performance or negative performance of a sports team is luck. It is, it is the one item that has a more outsized impact in your team's performance than any other. And he even discusses it where he, on the podcast where he's like, if there's one thing that I could harness, it would be luck. Like it, the whole con the whole, like, you know, cliche, it's better to be lucky and good is actually true. <laughs> because it it does have an outsized impact on your performance over a small sample size, right? We know that over time, these statistical models will flatten out and things, you know, the variances and the positive and negative variances will sort of 
even out over time. But in a short sample size, and in fairness, a 34-game MLS schedule is a short sample size. Like, a big sample size would be like 500 games. Like, a 500-game sample size, you would see this stuff even out. But the thing is, over that time, you would have to have the same players, the same coaches, mm-hmm. the same opponents. Everything would have to be exactly the same. And we know sports isn't like that, right? So that makes luckiness, so to speak, to be a fairly valuable commodity if you can find it. It seems like it seems Obviously, like luck is predictive. It seems but... like luck is kind of baked into um, a couple of the more uh, um, the the more popular. Uh, advanced statistics for MLS, like if you look at XG and and uh, so expected goals and expected assists, uh, uh, there is an element of luck that's sort of inherent in those uh, statistical measures. And you don't have like expected field goals or expected extra points, you know, in the NFL or expected three pointers in the in NBA. It doesn't really work that way necessarily. And so um, I don't know. It's just it's just a, a fascinating thing that kind of popped into my mind. Yeah, he discussed a lot on that podcast about baseball and how advanced they are in statistical analysis as far as measuring performance. Um, one of the examples that was there was like, you know, for the longest time up until, you know, mid mid 2000s, we were talking about on base percentage and um, home runs and RBIs and things of that nature. And what they realized was once you understand the exit velocity of the ball off the bat, everything else becomes irrelevant for the batter. You no longer care about the what the batter did. You're, once the ball leaves the bat and you know what the exit velocity is, the performance of the batter has stopped, right? And similarly, from the pitcher's perspective, once you know the velocity of the pitch and the spin ro- and the rotation of the rotation of the ball, and the axis that it's on, you have, you have, there's no more data, there's no more information you need about that pitcher, right? And it's sort of breaking that down um, into these, I think what he phrased it was these, um, I gotta remember what the phrase was. It was, it was really profound when he said it. Um, Temporal moments of measurable performance, right? Something along those lines, right? Where you just like you this, you have found the exact moment where all measurable performance has been achieved. And we can just move on. We can just discard all the noise around it. And again, you guys, I know this is getting nerdy statistically, but it is important to how you evaluate the performance of your players. And that's why I want to get to it's like he he spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the the way that the model sort of identifies positive traits or positive capabilities or not. And how the um, how that informs the way they scout, because if you consider a scout watching a pitcher and they have to watch. Like trying to figure out if a pitcher is good and they have to watch thousands of pitches to make sure that that pitcher is good. What if they immediately know before they go look at that pitcher once that what his pitch velocity is, what his spin rate is, what all of that is. And all you're looking for are like the little nuanced sort of things about, you you know, decision making. 
right? That's obviously the key part of performance that we can't measure or we can't really see is decision-making. How do you utilize those skills that are inherent to you in the right way, the right time? If you've already eliminated all of the other stuff and all you're looking for is the decision-making, you can come up with a much clearer picture of who a player is at a very early stage and you can do it so fast that you can have a really good understanding. And that is how they went about revitalizing Toulouse. They have done a little bit of that at AC Milan this year. They, they, they bought the team last year and they were just coming off winning the Scudetto. So obviously they're not going to change a ton of things. And we'll get into that conversation here in a second. But it's more along the lines of what, how can you identify high quality talent that may be undervalued? Right. That's the whole Moneyball thing for all of you that have read Moneyball or watched the movie. The whole concept of it is how do we find and utilize potentially undervalued talent because it's misunderstood. And it's just a fascinating thought process for me that I, I have some concerns is being utilized as well as it could be when it comes to the club we talk about every week. Uh, yeah, it, it does make me feel better about uh, Pulisic and, and Musa signing with Milan, though. So <laughs> there, there is that. Um, uh, well, for the value that they signed them for. Right. So that's a key it's thing value. you have to look yeah. at when, mm-hmm. when it comes to Pulisic. Pulisic was not a $77 million sure. dollar player, yeah. right? And I think we all can agree with that. But at 25 million euros... Yeah. Is a killer right. Deal. And that's what I'm saying. Like, there's a scale here as you look at the value and also like what things he does well and how they can be utilized. Um, Luke Bourne spoke over and over and over again about getting the, 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 the other key part is getting your best players on the field in the mm-hmm. best way. Right. And um, it's you know, you see what happens when Pulisic gets on the field and gets to do his thing and is free to do it, that it is he's an effective player. And I think that that's the, that, that we, we, we talk about this a fair bit on the podcast about putting players in positions to succeed, making sure that you have your best players put in, in, you know, in, in areas where they are most successful. That that's a, that's a part of this process, but also it's an identification process. And the reason I bring that part up is because with MLS, you have such a closed system for how you can identify players and how much you can pay them. Right. So there is a extreme limitation on how much money you can pay a player and um, the, the quality level that is available to you generally as a result. So if you can utilize a better analytics model to enable your scouts to spot those players effectively in a shorter time window, especially in underserved areas, it could be potentially a game changer for you. In a clo- like I said, in a closed salary cap model, this kind of thing, you, there's nothing limiting in an ownership group from spending money on analytics. There's nothing stopping them from doing it. So in that circumstance, you can be more effective at this. And the one thing I would say is because we talked about luck and luck being a huge factor in the level of results, and we've talked a lot about how lucky St. Louis has been this year. 
I know for a fact St. Louis has a really, really robust analytics mm-hmm. platform yeah. inside their club as far as how they identify players. Like, have you ever fucking heard of Joao Klaus before they signed him? No. no. Like, there are they, – they have a very, very robust platform for analytics within their club as far as how they identify players, how they scout players, how they – you know, all those things. And you can sort of – I don't want to say create your own luck because I don't think that's necessarily true. You can, you, you, can can st- certainly... you can stack the odds in your favor. Yeah, there there are there are deficiencies mm-hmm. amongst your opponents that you can exploit if they're not because you are taking advantage of them and they are not mm-hmm. right. And um, that that really sort of rung true for me, and it, it is it is something that. You know, uh, I know uh, the analysis evolved guys, Amer- ASA, American Soccer Analytics. They they do they do the um, they do the the annual sort of ranking mm-hmm. of yeah MLS analytics departments and sporting is generally in the bottom quarter yeah. quartile of that every time. I don't know if sporting is really poor at analytics or they just don't give out much information because that's a thing. It's like part of it is the collaboration, the understanding of what other clubs are really doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know that Peter Vermees is notoriously tight-lipped about what's going on inside the building. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's hard for me to tell whether or not there is a robust analytics platform or not. What I would say is the way that I hear him speak in public leads me to believe that he is not someone who is he he's more on the I know what I see guy versus the um, versus the math part of it. And so I have some concerns there about how effectively this club is using it. Um, and also when I look at teams who have consistently overperformed their expected goal differential, that's kind of how I look at it mm-hmm. at a team level. If you look at it across a season, teams that consistently overperform their expected goal differential – typically have a strong analytics department um, and also use that for um, development and youth development. They understand how to evaluate their youth players mm-hmm. and what stuff they're good at and how to use that to develop them. Um, the Philadelphia union are a prime, a prime example of this. They have a very strong analytics department. They don't spend as much on their roster. They have a very strong analytics department and a very strong Academy and they do a very good job of bringing players up from that academy into the first team, which is an extremely valuable asset in the salary cap, right? And so, like, all of these things are intertwined. And it's just, like, trying to figure out how to utilize that type of information to influence decisions. And I I, I struggle to see that being a significant part of the decision-making process with the current club regime. And again, I'm not advocating for any changes. I'm not, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not, I'm really not trying to be that guy. Like Vermes has lost it, blah, 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 blah. I don't think that's true, but I do think that it is a competitive disadvantage not to be effectively utilizing this information. Yeah, I would agree. And, um, I would say, I would say, you know, especially with regards to, identifying and developing uh, youth ta- talent that's probably uh, an important uh, 
piece of the puzzle that's missing. Uh, it, I, the whole thing is fascinating to me because you know sporting sporting is good at uh, identifying uh, players who are uh, undervalued by their teams or who are in you know, leagues or situations that don't get a lot of attention. I mean, if you think, you know, think Garakinda, think, uh, I mean, I think, you know, Logan and Denbe, think uh, Eric Tommy. I mean, those are, those are players that uh, are not necessarily players that are being, th- that those type of players are not being signed by other um by other teams in the league. And so there's part of me that thinks that there might be some, uh, maybe a more robust uh, analytics department than we might, uh, than we might think. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it, like you said, it, the, did the that analytics thing... department also recommend Marino's Chinese? <laughs> well, right. I mean, because I mean, yeah, in, yeah, ser- yeah. in all seriousness, and I'm not trying to be a dick no, about this. You're right. I'm just, I, I, I don't, I, I don't see how that player's, skill set is additive to the capabilities of this game model. Totally and agree. Those two things have to be intertwined, yeah, right? Yeah. So that, totally that's agree. the reason I bring this up because like a significant part of how you use your analytical model has to be connected to mm-hmm. your, what your style of play is and what you need out of your players. And so you're, you're specifically taking the analytical model and looking for certain traits and capabilities because they fit well with what you're trying yeah. to accomplish and what you, what you need these players to be doing on the field. So the coach is inextricably connected yeah. to the analytics department and saying, this is what we need to do. These are the types of players we need. Hey, analytics department, help me find them. Hey, help me, help me empower my scouting department to find these guys. So right? so the good thing about Jonis is he is uh he's a dribbly winger who's good at uh taking on defenders and fullbacks especially uh 1v1. The, but the bad the bad part about um his play is that he 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 does not yield um goals, right? He doesn't either either uh create assists or goals and in this system your wingers have to His do goal that. creating actions are nothing. Yep. Yep. Zero. I mean he has a goal this year, so I guess it can't it's more than zero. But yeah, I yeah. mean he effectively he, zero. He has a final ball problem, mm-hmm. either the shot or the pass. He's just not good at it. Yep, and that should have been easily recognizable. Mm-hmm. I feel like, um, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't, I, it doesn't I, I, seem I, like the type of like, thing you need advanced statistics to <laughs> to, the, the, to, to, to well, identify. Well, and, and that's the thing. It's like I, I, that's where I would be super intrigued by this to see what the analytical model showed in him, if there is one, versus what we see when we watch him play. And is this a confidence problem or is it a mm-hmm. skill problem? Yeah. Right. Is it a capability problem? Um, but what I really, really appreciated about the whole conversation that he had, and, and, and seriously, guys, if you're interested in this stuff, um, it's called the Wharton Moneyball Podcast. Luke Bourne is who you're looking for. It's about an hour long. Fascinating to me. Uh, just kind of how the guy thinks about information and how he utilizes it. Um, and his own admission that so much of his own success is related to right place, right time yeah. and luck and yeah. all the things that go along with that. Right. And, and he, and his own admission that his team when they win, isn't always determinate by his 
analytical model. It's more, you know, they got the right opportunities at the right time and things mm-hmm. went their way. But it's, um, but it's weird, you know, it's, it's weird, you know, speaking about luck, how good players and or good teams, they tend to be just more lucky than uh, than the average player would be, right? Well, I mean, well some, of it, Alan some Polito, of it is related Alan to Polito their is, investment. Alan Polito is more lucky than the average striker would be. He, he so talent is involved. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talent is involved in overperforming, ex- overperforming expected performance, right? So I don't want to call it expected goals, but there's an ex- right. expectation right. performance based on historical data and all the things you've seen from a player. Their ability to overperform an average player is expected. So that's a thing that we have mm-hmm. to remember. Yep. A certain player's ability to overperform an average player's expected performance is worthwhile. It's significant. That is why you spend $10 million to sign them. Of course it is. But the other thing that we have to also recognize is the differential between that average player and Alan Polito and how much that impacts overall performance of the team is significantly lower than good fortune. Mm -hmm. It is. And that's a hard thing for a lot of people to accept. And this is sort of a, it's a sort of a human condition sort of situation, right? We don't like having to grapple with the fact that things going on are outside of our control. We want to believe that someone is in control of how this thing happened, right? We want to say, this guy's to blame. He didn't do this shit the right way. Mm-hmm. That's why this thing did this thing failed, right? That is how the human condition is. And it's been that way for thousands of years. And don't even be started on just how much it permeates our consciousness yeah. as far as like how we come up with ways to explain things that we don't understand, right? And so it's a difficult concept to wrap your head around that the vast majority of whether or not Sporting Kansas City beats San Jose on Wednesday is going to come down to whether good fortune yep. and chances going their way. Yep. And it, it's not to say that, well, not even the vast, I shouldn't even say the vast majority. It's not the vast majority. It's not. That's not the right way to say that. There are a multitude of factors that come into play. The one, the, the one that has the largest impact is good fortune, luck, positive statistical variance. It is the largest of those. It is not the majority. I don't think it's 50%. Teoto Football was putting something out today where he said that some some guys said that 50% of the game is luck. I don't know that it's that big of a number. I don't think you can quantify it. That's the problem. There are too many data models that would disagree with that. But it is the largest variable. Which is a tough one for people to kind of get their head around. Right? And, and luck comes in a variety of ways. That, I think that's part of the problem, right? Luck comes in a variety of ways. Did the ball bounce a certain way into somebody's foot? Did the ref Is the referee seeing things for you and not for others? You know, there's just so much involved with it, right? There's so many different parts of the game that can kind of build this luck bucket up to a larger percentage than anything else. Um, and it's a hard one for people to, like, they, they want to be able to explain Hey, this thing happened, and that's why we lost. Well, sometimes Kyrie tripped. It's not like it. It's not like he did something bad. He tripped. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and this this goes to this goes to the conversation you and I were having before the podcast about how we watch games and how we absorb them. So the last concept I wanted to talk about is that, that Luke Bourne discussed is that he does not watch games live, which I thought was really wild. Like the dude owns AC Milan, <laughs> doesn't watch them play live. And his reasoning for it was that because there's so much emotional bias in how you watch a game live, like you see things and you feel them and it like colors your opinion of what happened, that you don't read the information rationally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, you could potentially not. I shouldn't say you don't. You potentially could not read the information rationally. So his thing is, is like, I want to read this visual data as in a rational state as possible, right? So I'm going to let the game end. I'm going to let our data model take its own insights and give it, you know, tell me what it, you know, tell me, give me that information and let me kind of noodle on it and sort of understand this is what we think happened, right, from the data model. And then I'll watch the game dispassionately and see, is this accurate or is it? Are there adjustments we need to make to the model so that there is there a, is there a black is is there a blind spot in the model that's not seeing certain things? Mm-hmm. Was it just wrong because of whatever variance happens because it's live human beings running around chasing a ball, right? And um, it, it reminded me of the fact, and you and got you and I have had this conversation before, that when we rewatch games. We often have a fairly different opinion of what happened yeah. than when we saw it live. And um, we've often done this podcast without rewatch and had fairly emotional reactions <laughs> to it. <laughs> and it, but it, 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 I, I like I say that like owning that from my perspective is like sometimes I've been fairly fired up about stuff. And part of it is because I'm a huge fan of this club. We do this podcast as a passion project. We're not making a, we're not making money doing this. Part of it is because you and I just like to get some, get our thoughts out um, between each other and just get it, make it happen. But the other part is, is like we really, we are passionate about this club and we want to get our feelings out there as well as share them with others and also perhaps offer alternate points of view on certain things we see surrounding them. Um, but it's it's interesting for me to consider how I absorb this club in the future and how I look at analyzing mm-hmm. their performance. Let me put it that way, right? Um, yeah. go, I'm going to the games. This is uh, Look, I'm a season ticket holder. I'm renewed for next year. I'm going to be at every game. The question is, when we come to this podcast and talk about it, how do I look at that analysis? And I think that that's a fair perspective to have. Is like, was the performance as bad or as good as we thought it yeah. was? Probably a little of both, or it's not. Well, I think we both. For me, made... I think we both also, in, in addition to sometimes uh, when we can rewatching the games. I mean, we both uh, before we we podcast, we both um, look at advanced statistics. 
uh, before almost every podcast, you know, and and we look at, before I rewatch, I right? Look at and it. and and oftentimes look at advanced statistics put forth by different platforms because uh, they don't all use the same uh, the same algorithms. They don't all use the same data the same way, and and so just in terms of being an informed fan, it kind of helps to 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 look around and and get an idea of you know what 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 one platform does that the other doesn't do and 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 um and sort of pull together that information to pay, to paint a, a a broader picture and one that's hopefully more accurate what i wouldn't do to have the motion tracking data mm. of sporting yeah it'd be interesting it would be amazing mm-hmm. because the be- the best like positional data we have is who scored and that's touches yeah. right they're just logging every touch so that's only when the player touches the ball mm-hmm. that you actually get to see that. I'd love to see a heat map of every movement, right? And every once in a while, Sporting will put one on the on the um, on social media just because they're trying to highlight a player's good game yeah. or something like that. But yeah, it would it would be amazing to have that data. Um, and Sporting has that data. I know they use it. Hundred percent. There's a there's a whole it. world of data that uh, that you know everyday fans don't have access to um and they that's it's because it's uh it's proprietary or uh it's being used there's a re- in, they're yeah, not going to give right, it to me and, right. and i understand why like i get it i'm not yeah. i'm not i'm not expecting them to make it public they should never make that public no, I, I understand why they don't um but it but would be fun yeah, to, it would be it would amazing be to, to look at yeah it would be fun to see i wonder if i could convince them to give us like some from like a game in 2022 that'd be cool yeah i bet they could i bet i bet bet, like something where it's like sort of innocuous Mm -hmm. and it's not that important from a a competitive standpoint if they would do that it's kind of like the guys showing off f1 cars from three years ago yeah like they're they're not as concerned about the the competitive disadvantage that it might bring up but um it did it did sort of instruct like just this whole thought process of like thinking about analytics in this way and thinking about how they can be utilized it, it did make me think about how I analyze this team. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, and doing it in a, in a bit more, a bit less emotional and a bit more rational way, which I think is important for all of us for sure. Um, every, every time I go and, and look at the, uh, at the goals added uh, metrics on American soccer analysis, I, I, I have to reexamine the way that I think about the team because like Alan Polito's score on that is so low. He's terrible. It's just like He's it's terrible. ridiculously bad, and it just makes me like, like go, 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 why, why? Reanalyze like what is the hole well, in this, and what is, yeah, it's. But Fontes is always super high right. in it, yeah. so I, I just think that there uh, and those guys, if you talk to them, will tell you, like Elliot and the, the guys mm-hmm. over there that yep. run that, will tell you that certain players are naturally always going to be higher low yeah. on this just because of the way the model works. And they understand that it's not perfect for every mm-hmm. individual. Yeah. Um, where, where I, in fact, I try to stay away from the individual statistic stuff too much other than some of the larger kind of things about like, you know, percentile ranges compared to other players in that way, you know, touches yeah. and, uh, through balls and things like that. Like I like the FB ref stuff and some of the mm-hmm. visualization visualization stuff you can do with FB ref now is actually really cool. But um, I think that there's with G plus, there's always a big caveat to me on that. Like, yeah. I, I think it's a, it's an interesting thing to look at, but it's far, it, you can't be the only 
source of truth. No, not at all. Okay, let's move on. Potpourri time. Just like your favorite Jeopardy category, this is where we discuss one topic that could be anything in and around the Sporting Kansas City MLS Soccer Sphere. And it is Vladko in. <laughs> Called it. Finally. <laughs> Finally. We've been calling this for about, what, three months? I mean, it, it, you know, it finally happened. Yeah. Vlatko is the head coach and the sporting director, I guess. So there's some sort of combination of efforts with him and the GM, Camille Ashton. He sort of poo-pooed it a little in the press conference. He's just like, oh, yeah, we should have a collaborative relationship. That should be the way it should always be, blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> so I don't know what level of control he's going to have over personnel versus uh, versus Cammy Ashton, but... He's in. He's our coach. I don't know if this is good or bad, but, you know, this, this seemed sort of inevitable. Yeah, it uh, definitely seemed uh, inevitable from even before uh, the World Cup. It just seemed like it just seemed that naturally whatever happened in the World Cup, Vlatko was going to not be the coach after that. And um, and and then once once the 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 team sort of bowed out of the World Cup, it was very uh, apparent, I think, that that, you know, uh, this was uh, probably going to be a, a, a high up on his list of priorities because he lives here. He's coached here. Uh, he's coached UMKC. He's coached uh, the uh, FC Kansas City team to a couple championships. Uh, he um, he has roots in the community. Uh, as much as any uh, coach can, and I think that from that aspect, it's like a good thing. It's it's good to have people uh, from within the community uh, working to to make our our teams better. Um, but you know, uh, the the league has changed a lot since uh, Vlaka won his uh, championships um, in in the league, and uh, and. Uh, I would I would probably venture to say that the game has kind of changed a lot as well, and you know I, I'm not. It remains to be seen uh, if if he uh, can modernize his approach in a way that that works for the team. Yeah, I don't know if he, the the NWSL game has necessarily passed him by. Uh, I understand where your comment comes from. I I think that. Yes, things have changed in four years, of course. But I I think it's almost akin to Greg Berhalter. I think that his philosophy um, appeals more towards a club team than it does an international team, where he mm-hmm. can actually sit with them and coach yeah. them and coach them into his into his um, ideals of you know game model and all the things we discussed over and over on this podcast. He's a guy who has an idea of how he wants a team to play. And I think that perhaps his idea wasn't necessarily matched to the personnel he had with the women's mm-hmm. national team, especially when uh, uh, Mallory Swanson got injured. I think that sort of changed a lot. And, and Becky Sauerbrunn. You, you do those two things. Like, those are two, like, sort of linchpins of that starting lineup. And it's really sort of impacted how he was able to make things work. And um, I think with... A club team, you're more likely to have like for like or similar for similar uh, replacements mm-hmm. when an injury happens or somebody's not available, and you're able to get everyone sort of on the same page with your playing style and philosophy and figure out the right places for players at an early stage. So, I think that uh, his 
style of coaching probably is more um, useful at the club level than it is international. Yeah, I would agree. International, the, the best international coaches don't tend to fuck with stuff too much. Yeah. More vibes. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> did you see Germany against the U.S.? Like, Julian Nagelsmann already has them just... He has their back. He did go to the back. He did his back three, but they yeah. have the center backs to do it. And they were just flying, man. They were just doing yeah. their thing. And it looked like fun football. Um, the U.S. did their thing against Ghana. They came back and they they smoked a team that they have historically had a problem with. So I was, yeah. I was, I was warmed by that. But, um, yeah, some coaches – you know, notwithstanding, typically international coaches tend to eliminate a lot of the bullshit and just sort mm-hmm. of get guys in places to succeed. Berhalter's not doing that. We'll see no. how that <laughs> how but, that goes. But but he is but he is built. I mean, he's. I think that his situation is a little bit different because he's working with younger players, and so it's more. And they were of a develop- super young when he started. They were super young, right? And and they're going to be like getting, twenty-seven yep. when we get to the World and, Cup and have and six have, years, seven years yep. with him. They will have played in that same system um, and and working under those same principles for that amount of time. In general, I agree though that that uh, coaches with such complicated. Uh, game models probably shouldn't be coaching uh, internationally, and that's why it always, it always, um, I, I was always uh, kind of perplexed that people who wanted to get rid of, of of Greg Berhalter, the the first name on their lips was uh, um, um, <laughs> Red Bulls. Um, Oh, Jesse Marsh, yeah. Jesse Jesus Marsh, Christ. right? I got my his, my my brain just uh, <laughs> blanked on it. But but I mean, it's it's but a there, similar. You go type the other of way thing. too. Sim- you can hire right, Jurgen I mean, Klinsmann, right? Like, right, like that's it, all there, vibes, right? There, you know. There's like yeah, a silly. there's a happy medium somewhere. <laughs> sure there in is there. absolutely. <laughs> um, absolutely. Some people had suggested Patrick Vieira. I don't know that I would have hated that. Like, I think he's no. somewhere in that in that area where it might yeah, work. I agree. But Thierry Henry, I was like, no, dude, no, absolutely not. Um. But there's, yeah, there, I think that your concerns about him adapting to current NWSL, I don't think that's going to be a problem. And I think that I, the one thing that you can be certain of, and this is something the current have not had since Matt Potter was fired, is they will have a clear identity in how they want to play. Yeah, that's true. Right? That's true. And there will be a, there will be a well-coached team on the field. Yep. And I don't say that as any type of slight to Caroline Herbloom. I, she was put into a very tough situation, and I do think that she probably has some um, ability. She has some abilities as a coach. I don't. She said she was like, "I'm ready to run any team in any of this." Song. I don't know about that, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I, I, I think that um, she definitely has a skill set as a coach that is valuable. Um, so hopefully, she's able to find that opportunity. All right, one thing to look for. Let's do our preview of San Jose. So, San Jose has not won in Kansas City since 2015. Okay, that would have been that would have been the that would have been the Philly, that was when we beat Philly for the Open Cup, right? 2015. Um, that would have been a Sony Mustavar season for sure. Oh my goodness gracious! <laughs> you want to go back there? There's, there's a name, <laughs> Jordi Quintilla. Yeah, there's yeah. some guys on that team. Yeah, uh, Christian Lobato was probably on that team as well. <laughs> oh my, 
Oh I'm sorry, goodness. dude. I got you. You're, you're, you're busting out all these old names. Yeah. Hey, I got. I, love I it. mean, I don't know if Mike Coon's listening, but he he'd probably tell me that I was wrong about one or more of those players. Jordy Cantillo sure. was definitely on that team because he's the one that took the penalty from Jake Peterson uh, against Philly. Jake, I go. Jake, I go. Um, I guess uh, I saw the no other podcast talking about this. Apparently, San Jose has not beaten Kansas City in Kansas City in 20 games or once in tw- it's uh, once in 20 games. So that game in 2015 was the one mm. time in 20 games here that they've won. So, you know what that means? <laughs> Statistical variance game against uh-huh. us. I will see. I mean, but all of the numbers are definitely pointing against San Jose. San Jose has two road wins this year. Two. Um, they have scored. Uh, I'm some of this. I'm Nathan Martin put together, so I appreciate him doing this. They have scored more than one goal five times in 17 games on the road this year. Um, they have one win in their last 10 games. A lot of those are draws. They have a lot of one one and zero zero draws in that time. They have a really high-level goalkeeper that a lot of people are voting goalkeeper That's, of the year over yeah. Berkey, uh, Danielle, the Brazilian goalkeeper. Uh, I so that's a problem, and they do that's have the an big, app. That, that's my biggest concern, honestly. And they do have a game-changing best eleven right winger in Christian Espinosa, yeah. uh, probably going to be in the top. Who thrives three in trans- transition. Thrives in transition. Yeah. Probably going to be the top three in the MVP voting, and he should be. Um, definitely in the best 11 for sure this year. And Danielle might be the goalkeeper in the best 11 over Berkey, which is saying something. Um, so they do have two significant game changers on roster on both ends of the field, which, you know, this is, it's a one game deal. Yep. A couple guys go big and it can be a problem for sure. So, um, the one thing I would say is Logan and Denbe had Christian Espinosa in his fucking pocket when they came here yeah. last time. Yep. And and, J- and Jake Davis had uh, what's his face on the other side too. I mean they didn't give up anything to either one. Oh, of those Kate guys. Cowell. Yeah, Kate Cowell. Kate Cowell. Yeah. I was I was surprised by that. Jake was able to run with him. I was like, oh, I didn't know yeah. Jake had those wheels. Um, hey man, Jake, Jake, Jake can Jake can defend just about anybody. I'm kind of well, convinced. but. <laughs> Like, Kay Cowell is fucking fast. Yeah, Like, he he's really fast. Um, yeah. I, he got by him once, but, I mean, if you only get if you only get beat by Kay Cowell in a sprint one time in 90 mm-hmm. minutes, yeah, you're having a pretty good Jake, day. Jake Davis isn't, like, su- super fast, but he's fast enough, right? And that's all you got to do is, as a defender is just, you guys got to be fast enough, and he is, uh, to get himself in, into position usually where he needs to be. Yeah, I, I have to be honest, like, the the – you know, Espinosa and Danielle aside, uh, uh, San Jose really I, does not scare me like at all. Um, and because I think uh, other than those two spots, uh, we match up very, very, very fa- favorably with them. I'm smiling because you know you might know where I'm going with this, but you you, you know we like to give give Matt Doyle shtick every once in a while. You know how much Matt Doyle used to just like love on Jeremy Abobasi. Just act like yeah. he was going to be like the next greatest freaking center forward of all time, yeah. and he's fine. He's perfectly fine. Sure, he's but a he's, like Amer- he's like he's yeah. like American Diego Rubio. Okay, yeah. he he's yeah. he's he's a solid MLS center forward, but he's not 
the player that the Doyle makes him out to be or had no. made him out to be like he's doing with Duncan McGuire right now in Orlando. Like he acts like Duncan McGuire is like the next greatest center forward in the U S pool. Like he's, he's, he's trying to compare him to Brian McBride. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> okay. Let, let's just calm down. He did the same thing with Henry Kessler as a center back. Like he had that one good year as a rookie, and all of a sudden Henry Kessler is like the greatest center back ever because they all came out of college to the draft. It's just kind of the Doyle thing. But Aboba C was one of those guys, and he's a perfectly fine player mm-hmm. and is definitely worth whatever, you know, sort of TAM level salary he's making. In sure, he is. Sure, he is. He's. He's like ten years younger, Jossie Zardes. Yeah, not which not is even fine, that, honestly. Yeah, but, but, huh? yeah. I said yeah. not even that, probably, but yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, Joss, Zardes Jossie... had that, Zardes had one good year playing for Burhalter in Columbus. Yeah. Like, what else has Zardes done? He was a, he was good enough to play for the national team um, quite a bit. Um, that's because I mean, the national you know, team was fucked. Well, okay, so that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say I remember. Uh, I'm I'm old enough to remember when him like, scoring Tommy off Tom- his butt for, for Tommy Thompson was supposed to be the next like greatest thing um, when he was. Well, young. But this is how this. And, that's what I'm saying. This yeah, yeah it's always goes. this way. Yeah, and absolutely. we we had a we had a long conversation about analytics versus eyeballs. Yeah. And, uh-huh. Yeah. I, <laughs> I just I just tend to like dial back on some of that stuff. Doyle yeah, talks a lot should. about about goals and assists, and I'm like, bro, there are better statistics than this. Like, don't be the guy talking about ERA rating pitchers. Um. Anyway, it, I, I you're you're not wrong. Um. I struggle to worry about two two players other than Danielle and Espinosa. Yeah. Kate Cowell, I, I have a lot of hope for Kate Cowell, but it's not turning into anything. I'm not scared of him. I mean, I have a lot of hope too, but I'm not. Uh, I'm not. A hope for him as like a U.S. fan. Like I want him to become yeah. a really good player. I don't see it right now. No. Um, there's no end product. There's and there's not even really a hint of an end product. So yeah, I think that. Uh, I think that. You know, so so Jake Davis has a uh, a little bit of I think a calf strain, and so it'll be interesting to see uh, if he plays. And uh, I don't know when it, that calf strain happened, but he was no, he was he was limping in the second half. Uh, was he later in the? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was okay. having lots of lots of issues, and so um, so then yeah. Why didn't um, Zussi come on? Like I don't. I mean, because because uh, Davis was was he kept because Davis kept, on he, one and a half legs is faster than Zuzi. Well, to. there is that, there is that, but he kept like he kept like favoring it and messing with it, and then he'd he'd be fine for a little bit, and then he'd have to, you know, he'd have to put out a fire, and make a tackle, man. and right. Unless so unless the, he can't unless he can't plant on yep. it, he's gonna play. Yeah. That's like this uh, stuff with Johnny yep. Russell and 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 Pulido. A little bit know. of gamesmanship, maybe. There's a little bit. I I don't know. Johnny had like a big old like compression yeah. thing around his hamstring. Like he he does yeah. have a nagging thing going on there. There's no fucking way he's not playing. You saw what he did with that mm-hmm. injury. Like yeah, he Johnny amazing. Russell them. Like I. Yep. This is the thing. I uh, uh, Vermes did say this also after the, after the game. Johnny's got balls. He's gonna yep. go after it. He's he is going to do the game-changing shit 
and I, this is something that you and I have discussed on this podcast regularly over the last couple of years and what this team needed to do to make themselves more relevant in these playoff circumstances. It was to have these game changing players that would just take it on their, take it on themselves and fucking score a goal. Yep. And sporting did not have a high XG in that game that they scored. Nope. They, they like less than one XG and they scored yeah. three goals. It was because they got after they just took it on themselves to be aggressive and get after mm-hmm. shots. And sometimes you just have to do that, especially in especially in like elimination games. And that's what last Saturday was. It was elimination game. You have to yep. win. And, and that's what tomorrow is. I think that part of it I am warmed by. That they were like, this is an elimination game. We got to go after it. We got to just win. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah. they, the guys sort of did that. So I have some level of optimism about their yeah. ability to do it again. Um, doesn't mean it will happen, but I hope it does, obviously. Because, man, it would be so great to get St. Louis. I'm sorry, man. I mean, obviously, I'd like to have two of those games at home versus two two of them on the road. But I mean, beating them beating them twice on the road would be better. Well, beating them on the road the first game. I mean, beating them beating them on the road the first game and closing them out at home would be the best thing in the world. <laughs> and and I said I said on Twitter that I I almost would prefer that to MLS Cup, and I I mean I I'm even more convinced by that. I mean that just uh, you know. Yeah, the the only there's, reason, there's I, the only reason that, I would agree honestly. with you is because if we were to close them out at home, it would be at home. It would be in yeah. front of the home crowd. We would get yeah. to sort of celebrate it with them. Yeah. We're not celebrating an MLS Cup at home. So, no. I mean, some really crazy shit would have to happen for that to occur. Yeah. So, I, I think that, yeah, I kind of see where you're coming from on that. Not to mean that I, you know, wouldn't like celebrating a trophy, but... Yes, I'm not poo-pooing the MLS Cup. I'm just saying that this is like, this is a big deal, and especially given the season that we that we've had, and given the the way that the that the other two games in St. Louis um, went, I think that um, I think that that would be just uh, a perfect way to uh, re-energize and revitalize uh, all the soccer fans in Kansas City. Yeah. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves, though. We got to win a game on on Wednesday. Now, granted, if we win that game, we're not going to record another podcast before that. So, if if we win that game on Wednesday, we get St. Louis on Sunday. Is it Sunday or Saturday? I can't remember. I thought it was Saturday. It might be. There's no way they do a 9 p.m. Sunday game, right? No way. (laughs) They're doing an 8:30 Wednesday game. (laughs) Well, that's because the other game is before the Eastern Conference game is before us. Like I understand that part of it. Um, Allie put that up. Anyway, don't worry about this. We're not, you guys will know when the game's on. So we're not going to, I'm not going to try to sit here and search for this at the end of the podcast. Um, what I will say is it's good to talk to you again, bud. Yes. Nice talk. You know, I want, I just want to say that I missed last week. It's my fault that we missed, but I did miss for soccer related reasons. So I feel like, you know, it's not, it's not so bad. Did, uh, did Cam's coaching experience go well? Uh, yeah, they uh, they won their uh, their conference tournament, so right. uh, it was nice nice to see. All right, it's a chip off the old block. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs>
except that he's 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 still young enough that his that his team which is all middle schoolers they were able to lift him up on their shoulders collectively which is kind of hilarious i love that they actually did that that's great they did and then they dropped him and 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 dogpiled him no they weren't able to carry him he was they were too too weak for that (laughs) it wasn't like lou holtz uh, no (laughs) no he's not he's not a a tiny frail old uh, man <laughs> On that note, I'm Drew. He's Cody. We'll talk to y'all next week. Bye. Start doing it. Start doing it.